Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And today we are speaking to comic book writer and columnist Dark Manning, who has recently released his new book, Right or Wrong, A Writer's Guide to Creating Comics. Manning tells us about his new book, his experience writing comic books like his anthology series, Nightmare World, and others and his recent scriptwriting work on the award-winning web series Black Box TV. Before we get started with the interview, we wanted to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series Reality On Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Harding. Now you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Since comic books don't usually have music, we start and end the interview with a snippet from one of the songs by Short Notice, which was also played in our web series. It's called Sanctuary, and it has a slightly dark vibe that fits the horror-themed work of Manning. Mm-hmm. And Short Notice was actually uh, one of our music guests in an earlier episode. Yes. Now let's get started with our featured interview for today with writer Dirk Manning. Entertainment. Today we have writer Dirk Manning visiting us again on the show. He has recently released his book, Right or Wrong, A Writer's Guide to Creating Comics. Uh, hi, Dirk. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Well, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about this new book and why you decided to start writing the column, the column that the yeah. book is based off of. Yeah. Uh, as you said uh, about you know this uh the right or wrong a writer's guide to creating comics which is available on amazon.com i might add sorry that was my cheap plug <laughs> but, uh, it, oh, it, it, and we should probably say write as in w-r-i-t-e oh yes yes because i'm very witty and punny like that <laughs> well we don't want him searching for the wrong thing <laughs> what's this book uh ethics and morality or something yeah <laughs> this is about creating comics and uh no i i started the Right or wrong, you know, W-R-I-T-E, <laughs> as a column for, and my sole intention was to create a column that could be a resource for people that wanted to write comics but couldn't draw. And to that end, really, my, my sole goal was just to uh, help people uh, learn how to – I get a little bit into the foundations of script writing, but I think there's a lot of other books about that already. So what I really sought to do – was create a book like, okay, if you know you can write, you've read Understanding Comics and, and things like that, you, and, you know, the Eisner stuff, and, and you understand the, 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 the fundamental foundations of how to put a script together. I still talk about that in the book slightly, but the bigger emphasis of this book is how do you meet artists? How do you successfully network with people and create a team and keep your team going and develop the discipline and and and, and question you know uh, 
why you're doing this. You know, why do you want to create comics? In fact, the very first chapter of the book is called Why Comics? And it's a question that I I suggest that all of the people interested um, ask themselves. So in that sense, the book is kind of like half full, you know, half practice and half foundation, probably even more, you know, your half, you know, theory of of why you want to create comics and how to create comics, how to manage your team and things like that. I mean, I was very fortunate. I've told this story a a million times and I I tell it in the book to make it a million and one. You know, when I started my comic book career doing the series Nightmare World, which eventually got picked up by Image Comics, Shadowline, and, you know, there's a couple of trade paperbacks out there. But, um, I, I, you know, lived in the Midwest. I didn't even have a computer in my own home. I did not have an, or I had a computer. I didn't have an internet connection. I had to go to the library to use the computer, things like that. I, I lived in Ohio. I knew no artists of a caliber that would, that could, that could work in comics. And uh, I was really fortunate to kind of meet some artists online and, and learn kind of the game a little bit and learn the ropes and turn it into a fairly successful or at least entertaining and, and, and personally satisfying comic book creating career. And I vowed, and you know, I was like the little Chef Boyardee kid in the old Chef Boyardee, you know, someday I will create a pasta. That tastes- <laughs> I vowed that if I ever got that chance, if I ever got to start making comics, I would do anything and everything I could to help other people that were in my position. We did the column online for free for five years over at Newsarama. Matt Brady at Newsarama agreed to pick up the column for Newsarama and um, we ran with it, like I said, for five years. I took last year off from the column, the online version, which uh, there's about 70 some installments of it, and boiled it down the, the first, a good portion of it into 26 chapters of this book. Like I said, we just talk about how to meet artists, where to meet artists, how to network with them, how to lead your team, and and just be successful in creating comics. Going from a guy that or girl that you know you can to this is how you can. And, and in the book's just everything I could tell anybody about how to make it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that brings up a good point. I noticed there's a one on the book. So will there be a sequel to the book, perhaps? Yes. Um, it probably won't be for, what is this, do that? a minimum, no sooner than 2014. <laughs> you know, yeah. You're putting this one together um, and and put a lot of other stuff off to the side to do it, despite it coming mainly from a lot of um, pre-existing columns. I kind of reformatted stuff for the book and, and updated it. There, there definitely will be uh at some point, like I said, maybe a year or so after this one really kind of permeates into the public conscience of everyone. And But I get the Pulitzer for it or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you said that you, you know, you were very far removed from the comic book world as far as creation goes. What was it that made you decide this is what I'm, I'm going to make comics? I don't know how to get started. I don't know where to begin, but, you know, gosh darn it, I'm going to do it. What was what was the catalyst for that? Um. Watchmen by Alan Moore, the the comic. <laughs> uh, I comics are just such a cool medium to tell stories, and it's a very unique medium. There's a way to tell stories in comic books that you can't do anywhere else. You can't. Uh, I've written uh, stuff for for film that's been produced. It's different. I've written pro stuff. It's different. You know, Harvey, the late great Harvey Picard said, you know, comics are words and pictures, and you can do anything with words and pictures. Mm-hmm. Right. It's really what it boils down to. There's just I love the juxtaposition. I, I love the way you can just do so much and tell such a unique 
there's such a unique approach to the storytelling that are so fascinating. And when it's done right, it's so very, very powerful. Uh, I, I didn't really grow up reading comic books. You know, I mean, I read a couple of things here and there and things like that. I was a voracious reader and I was a voracious reader, especially like short stories. I loved the Stephen King short story stuff. As I got older, you know, well, and Edgar Allan Poe, obviously, as I got older, I got into like Harlan Ellison and Lovecraft and Kafka. Ray Bradbury, when I, well, ever since I was young, was a, a huge one. Oh, I love Ray Bradbury. <laughs> it's just, wow. One of my biggest regrets in life is um, I had mono when Ray Bradbury came to where I lived at the time, mm-hmm. and I could not drag myself out to go see him, just to, just to bow at the altar, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I spend the rest of my life bowing to the altar of guys like Ray Bradbury and Allison, who just were such amazing speculative fiction writers. I, I didn't grow up a superhero kid, and that's one of the things that I think I, I constantly try to educate people on i mean that pretentious as that may sound you know but uh i i think the public at large is getting more and more aware that graphic novels and comic books are more than just superhero stuff it's not that i dislike superhero stuff but that's not what speaks to me mm-hmm. you know I, I sit here in an office surrounded by i i'm afraid to count how many graphic novels hundreds you know my walls are just lined with them i'm surrounded by bookshelves covered with graphic novels i have a graphic novel spinner rack and probably less than 25%, and that's probably even a pretty high number, probably even much less than that, are spandex-based. Again, it, because that's not necessarily what speaks to me. I'm, I'm a horror baby. You know, I write Nightmare World. I write love stories about death and tales of mystery and things like that. That's primarily what I'm interested in. But, you know, you can do slice of life stuff. You can do science fiction. You can do horror. There's just so much cool stuff, and it's just such a, a powerful medium. And when you get it right and when you really embrace – what makes comic books unique? And I think that, you know, Watchmen by Alan Moore really did this in regards to storytelling. There's just no going back, man. Not for me. You know, some people love film, some people love prose. But for me, first and foremost, I'm a guy that, that enjoys creating stories, telling, uh, using the comic book medium. Well, you talk a little bit about in the book, uh, part of the reason why you don't always get into superhero comics as much about theme and mm-hmm. uh, and partly why Watchmen has strong themes and that's what attracted you to it and to the crow. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about how I like how you say it in the book, like when you create your characters, especially the superhero, don't think that people are going to care about them. They're not going to care about them because they don't know them yet. Mm-hmm. They haven't been, you know, sewed on, on the branding like Marvel and DC has done for years. And so you have to build your story about powerful themes that the audience can appreciate. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I think that's most important because, as you said, I talk about in the book, a lot of people get into wanting to write comic books because they grew up reading comic books. And in America, that probably means you read superhero comics. I mean, Watchmen on the surface level, at least, is a superhero comic, you know. But usually, what you have to do as, as a writer, I think, to be successful is really develop a strong theme. You know, what's the emotional core of your story? What do you want to say about the world around you? Or what do you want to say about yourself? Or what do you want to say about society? What do you want to say about life? There are superhero books that can do that. But I would argue that a lot of times it's tougher And it's tougher because, in essence, you're talking about people in very colorful costumes that are all powerful uh, or or not, you know, or Batman that can do um, that. That it's really sometimes I would argue much more difficult to speak to the human condition in that way, because I'm not contrary to popular belief. I'm not Batman. 
Um, (laughs) But what I talk about the book as well is when you look at the truly iconic characters, your Spider-Man, for example, he's the nerd that's really capable of extraordinary things. He's the nerd that can give so much more, but no one knows it. Or you look at a guy like Batman, who turned this very negative thing in his life to a very positive thing. And arguably, you could even argue to the point of obsession, which could be seen as kind of bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and, and there are those stories that, that go that way. There, there's the Batman stories to talk about the theme of, I took this negative things, my parents getting just slaughtered in front of me, and now I, you know, save my city. But then you have the Dark Knight stories about this kid who's emotionally stunted, becomes obsessed with this battle that he cannot possibly win you know the punisher same way you know he's fighting a war he can never win or you get like x-men who you have this theme of you know the persecuted minority trying to survive in a world that hates them that's the reason that those those characters are iconic in their archetypes it's also why people for so long have struggled with being able to successfully market or or franchise wonder woman yeah. what is she for there's no theme that female, the theme of a woman in a man's world is not relevant anymore, you know, for the most part, you know, I mean, there's the glass ceiling and all this stuff, but, but you're not going to tell Wonder Woman stories about this, this ultra powerful Amazonian goddess trying to get equal pay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not a story. I don't think very many people would read for, for very long. So what I encourage people is, you know, superheroes are well and good. And you can tell stories with that, that, that revolve around a theme of superhero books, but you have to I, – I argue in the book that if you want to be successful, if you want to be noticed, you have to at least be aware of that. What's your theme? Not plot. Plot is boring, and the only people that are going to care about your plot is you. And you're going to care because you created the characters and you think this story is fascinating. But it's – I would argue it's very hard to find an excessive amount of books that appeal to a mainstream large audience or that are even a really – renowned and, and, and I hate to say the word is subjective is good, but praiseworthy based on the plot. I'll, I'll slaughter my own babe, you know, one of my own idols on this one. The plot of Watchmen, it's a superhero murder mystery. What the friggin' do? That's not what makes that book good. The plot's kind of pedestrian and gets outrageous by the end. <laughs> you know, it's like, really? Uh, you stole the ending from the Outer Limits, you know, really? <laughs> but the storytelling techniques and stuff he uses and some of the, the themes that he explores in the book are, are pretty solid. Uh, the Crow, you know, not beautifully drawn book ever, but the theme and the emotional resonance that James O'Connor put in that book is what makes it so powerful. And that's just something that very early in the book I, I talked to I talked to writers about. I'm like, OK, plot. Anybody can write a plot. A third grader can write a plot. But what's your theme? What's your emotional resonance that's going to hook people in? Because I would argue that when people really like something, they like the way it moves them. They like the way it moves their their heart and moves their soul. And that's that's what you got to do, whether it be with capes or not. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. As an adult and really through Mark's gained more of an appreciation for uh, a lot of comics and, you know, some more superhero things. And I enjoyed, you know, Justice League Unlimited, the animated series and the Superman. But as a kid growing up, I didn't care for Superman. I thought, you know, Batman was better. I didn't really care. I found them boring. I'm like, okay, so Superman is going to do the right thing. He always knows what the right thing is. And everything always comes out okay. And he's always right. And the bad guy's just always bad. And even, I mean, 
I remember being, you know, six, seven years old going, that's boring. Who cares? You know, it didn't, there was nothing interesting about that at all. And it, I don't, I don't know. I must be in, in the minority as, as far as that goes. I, I don't think you are, you know, um, I mean, sure, they franchise Superman over and over and over again. Everyone's aware of Superman, mm -hmm. but how many people in the world read Superman? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're counting in the thousands. Yeah. And, yeah. You, you know, and, and as far as, you know, talking about Wonder Woman, I never really completely connected with Wonder Woman, although it is sort of to, in this day and age, I just kind of roll my eyes, just kind of like, oh, brother, because so often, even nowadays in a lot of superhero comics, the women are the victims. They're the damsels. You know, the Ultimates the did the remake. The and they made refrigerators. <laughs> yeah, they made Wasp a battered woman. And I was like, oh, for the love of Christ. You know, what, what is this, 1950 something? It's not, it seems the superheroes, they can't quite seem in my mind oftentimes to catch up with the times. Well, no. And a lot of that I would argue is because, you know, when we're, when people are young and they read superhero books, that influences the evolution of how they write comic books when they're older. But they're writing from a almost like the dirt they grew up in. And I mean, dirt is a negative, but the soil they grew out of mm. was superhero books that use those same tropes and as adults even subconsciously a lot of writers get trapped into those same tropes yeah you know, um you know i i've said before and this is a very crass thing to say but i'm going to say it uh publicly because you know lo and behold dirk manning creates controversy again controversy. <laughs> but um you know rape is the new bank robbery i know that is so awful <laughs> it's terrible and it just makes me sick to my stomach because you know back in the day the worst thing you could do to someone was take their money. Everyone was struggling and people were coming to this country and they didn't have a dime to their name. And, oh, my God, if you rob the bank, that's the worst thing ever. Now you just have to make a – to be a villain, you have to be sexually salacious, it seems. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is people just want shock value for just the sake of shock value because they think it makes them cool. Yeah, and it's lazy and it's dis it is. And disgusting and it's ridiculous and it's just – horrible and then it's you know i mean it's and mainly it's violence against women or yeah. if you want to make someone really creepy make him gay yeah like f you man Come yeah on. i think Stop. it's intellectually it's very lazy you know just from an intellectual standpoint and then from a human standpoint i think it trivializes a very real problem that is very pervasive in really every culture still no, it, it, it is it is you know and it, and it, it just makes me sick to my stomach and again what you're then doing is you're creating moments that don't revolve around a theme. Yeah. Tell me, and I talk about this in Right or Wrong book uh, at length, as Marx was saying, your job as a writer or your, 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 your task that you put upon yourself, you know, like Atlas or like Sisyphus or whatever, you know, the is tell stories that reflect the way that you see the world. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you notice. There's only one Dirk Manning. There's only one of each of you. There's only one of all of us. And if you're going to take the time and the effort to write these scripts and and find artists and get people to share your vision and put this stuff out there, for the love of Pete, man, <laughs> to talk about how you see the world around you. You know, you got books like Eric Powell's The Goon, which is kind of this half noir, half comedy, half tragedy book. But it's unique and it's powerful, and I'm a huge mark for Eric Powell. I mean, just to a, a, a ridiculous degree. 
but the Goonies is this great book because it shows the world that he loves or shows the world the way he sees it. And that's a book that only he could create. Mm-hmm. Or you got a guy like uh, Mike Mignola who does Hellboy. It ties in monsters and fantasy and stuff like that. And this theme about this this guy, Hellboy, who he's predestined to be the harbinger of the Armageddon. And he says, I don't want to do it. And this this great, magnificent theme about can you change your fate and and you know how, how much influence could, do you have on things like that? You know, I mean, there these real powerful, resonant themes. Um, and, and going back to, I mean, Superman. Superman has had his moment. There was a great one issue. It was, I think, Action Comics seven seventy five. As I flash my geek card, um, <laughs> but it was called uh, "What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way." And they just made it into a movie called Superman versus the Elite. But basically, you have the old-fashioned, like you said, square-jawed Superman versus the new hip modern. They were an anagram of the authority. But the 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 edgy, we kill the villains. And, and it really juxtaposed, you know, Superman's values versus those values and what's right and what's, what's wrong. You know, but even, you know, uh, Robert Kirkman does Walking Dead, for example, or uh, which is, you know, obviously everyone knows about the zombie apocalypse and, and – what happens after the zombie movie ends? We got a book like Bomb Queen by Jimmy Robinson, which is just this crazy, over-the-top, sexy, crass, disgustingly violent supervillain that won and keeps winning. Those are stories that only these creators I'm mentioning can tell. Nightmare World is a story only I could tell. There is no one else on the face of God's green earth that could take 52 different short stories, each one a different subgenre of horror, and weave them into one giant story. It's never been done before. It will never be done ever again, because that's my story. That's my background. That's my life on the page. And that's what I talk about in the book. You know, that's what you got to do as a writer. Find the stories that only you can tell. Anybody can tell your little Batman story. Everyone has a Batman story. Each of you have a Batman story, a Superman story, a Spider-Man. You know, you could tell one. Mm-hmm. We all can Tell stories that only you can tell. Create your own world. Communicate, you know, dredge up that stuff in your soul and and, and tell the stories only you can tell. And and that's a a lot of what I I talk about in the book that trying to, you know, help people realize that this is a – creating comics is a long, laborious, arduous, lonely road. As a result, you have to have a lot of passion about it, you know, and I, I realize I'm like, you know, shaking my fist in the air and I, my, I guess my passion is probably coming out a little bit right now. <laughs> but you have to be passionate enough about it that you're going to push ahead no matter what. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to push ahead no matter what to write Spider-Man, but, you know, because that's not what I want to do. Dan Slott, who writes Amazing Spider-Man and was, was put on this earth to write Amazing Spider-Man. And that's why he pushed so hard to do it and now he's doing it. But he's the exception to the rule. And even him, he did his own work before that. You need to find the stories that you are just genuinely passionate about telling and telling them. And that's really the first step into successfully creating comics. Now, Sermon. <laughs> Another thing I like about this book is there, there aren't a lot of books on writing comics anyway. But this one is good from an independent comic book perspective, not trying to break into Marvel or DC. And also from someone who's a writer who's not an artist, which, you know, I'm not. And I'm yeah. sure most people aren't. But I can't even draw a crooked line. Yeah, I, I always say I can't draw a straight stick person with a ruler. I mean, I'm just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is a great book that fills a niche that's been missing. And you spend a lot of time talking about how to get your team together and your artists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Or I think, yeah. you know, a little bit about how to find those artists? Yeah, you know, I mean, and I talk in the book, uh, I went through, you know, when I started the column five years ago, one of the earliest things I did was I said, look, if you're really serious about finding artists, 
here's the places to go online. And I went back through in the book and found the most modern places where artists tend to uh, hide online. You know, And I say the word hide because people that draw like to draw, but they're the bells of the ball. And you got every writer ever, anybody who ever wants to create comics, it's like when they see artists, they like, they try to glom onto them. Would you write my book? Would you write my book? And I even say in the book, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, here's the places to go to find them. I'm telling you this so you can start looking around, but don't initiate contact yet because <laughs> things I want to tell you. you know? And uh, I even put like a little gag in the book. I'm like, go ahead. I'll wait for a minute. And, you know, I have a couple lines of ellipses, you know, it's like, okay, you're back now. <laughs> and, and I spend a couple chapters really talking about, you know, how, how to approach people that draw. And one of the most important things to keep in mind, yeah, there's a whole chapter called, you know, uh, chapter seven, making first contact. And then, you know, we get into co-creation versus dictation and uh, none of them are robots, you know, several of these. Because a lot of writers, by default, see artists as a means to an end. And that is the most disgusting and self-harmful attitude you can have. Artists are people that want to make a living or at least have fun making art as well. And what you have to realize is when you when you approach artists and, and meet them, it's kind of like a, a marriage you know, and the, the worst thing to do is, and I use this analogy in the book, go up to an artist you like online and email them or whatever and say, hey, I really like your artwork. You want to do like this 50 page maxi series with me about vengeance and la la la? Because they are going to run like hell. And why wouldn't they? Because <laughs> that's just like seeing a pretty girl or guy you like at the bar. You go up to this pretty girl and you, you notice her. She's very, she's very pretty, very beautiful. And you walk up to her and say, hi, my name is Dirk Manning. Let's get married. <laughs> you have to start very small. And, you know, there, there's a new artist, uh, not a new artist, an artist I'm going to be working with for the first time. Um, we're doing two uh, short four-page stories for these two different anthologies. We're going to see if we uh, are compatible with each other, you know. There's a courtship, and you date, and you ease into this stuff. And then if you work well together and if you enjoy working together and you have a similar artistic vision, then you keep working together and you work together more and more and more. But at the end of the day, the other thing to keep in mind is if someone really likes my writing or someone really likes his art, neither of us will necessarily have the clout when we get picked up for work for hire stuff to drag the other one with us. And whether or not that's even an obligation is something that you really need to ask yourself, that people need to consider because – We'll use um, Ryan Otley came up through Digital Webbing, who I came up through, and he draws Invincible now. He originally was doing a bunch of little short stories with these different writers and some I knew. And then uh, he got picked up to draw Invincible for Robert Kirkman. And it became a super hit. And Invincible is a really, really good book, you know, really great series. It's not that he betrayed anyone he worked with before. He's getting paid to do what he wants to, to do and, because he's a professional. And any artist you approach is an aspiring professional, just like you as a writer are an aspiring professional. And what you have to realize going into this is the best thing you can do is make each other look good, help each other get work, be happy for each other, and hopefully, you know, ideally, although very unlikely up front, make some money together. But at least have fun and treat each other as professionals. Have that integrity. I've had plenty of artists I've worked with over the years get bigger gigs after we were working together. Go. Yeah. Take 
the money. I am so genuinely happy. I see. I, I was just talking yes, yesterday night, as a matter of fact, to, to Ray Dillon, who I talked about in the book was the guy that illustrated the first uh, script I ever wrote and, and really is largely responsible for helping me become a comic book creator. Uh, and I talk in the story at length about how Ray and I met online and things like that. I think he was 17 at the time, you know, and I was like 21 or something. Uh, 22. But I went to the comic shop last week and I see he's doing all these covers for IDW books. And I'm so happy. And his wife, Renee, who he was just telling me last night, he's like, yeah, man, we've been married for seven years now. I remember where I was when I was talking to Ray, who, mind you, a little side note, Ray and I have met in person one time. <laughs> and I have known him for at least a, more, than, more than a decade, God, probably 15 years or something stupid like that now. <laughs> But we've met once. But I was talking to him on the phone yesterday. Wished me happy birthday, things like that. We were catching up for a minute. And uh, I remember exactly where I was standing the first time he told me about Rene Delise. And, uh, you know, and, and how they first met. And now they've been married for seven years. And now Rene, she did that massive womanthology thing for Kickstarter and, and really blew the doors off and really changed the industry with that book. And it's not – and Rene – uh, some of the first comic work Renee ever did was illustrated a story for Nightmare World uh, called Violet, and she went on to do another one. But Ray asked me to write a script for her to help get her some exposure and some get her get some work out there for her. And now that I see Renee doing all this other stuff, it's not like I'm like, man, you know, how come Renee won't work with me anymore? And I've had even writers come up to me and like, oh, you've worked with all these some of these people that you know are superstars now. That's got to piss you off. And I'm like, really? This is my friend, man. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. I'm excited. But I talk about other stuff in the book as well about how, you know, these are other aspiring professionals. They're not robots. People that can draw are not your drawing robot. We work with them in a professional partnership and a union in like a marriage almost. And, and you try to create great work together. Yeah. When you said that with writers wanting the, to dictate so much, you know, and treat them like robots, the artists, it kind of reminds me of, from my experience, you know, sometimes directors with actors. I've, I've seen directors who literally are like, okay, no, no, that's not right. I want you to kind of stand like this, kind of look, have your head at this angle, and then say the line like this. <laughs> right. And it's just kind of like, then why did you have people audition? Just, you know, get mannequins and position them and have voiceovers. <laughs> and and one of the reasons that, you know, I mean, at least in a storytelling sense, I can make the characters do what I want, I guess. But at the same time, when I work with an artist, I'm working with them because I believe in their ability to tell the story visually better than I will mm -hmm. well, uh, and, and give freedom. Yeah. And then we've done, you know, where people come in for auditions and here we wrote, you know, the script. We wrote this character and Mark's created this character. And then, you know, we'd have someone come in and do an audition and it was just like, whoa, I hadn't thought of that character that way. But they just totally blew our they minds see, and we're like, you know what? I don't want to go back. We want this person because this person brought a completely different dimension that we didn't think of to this character, but it's better, you yeah. know? And, and it, but if we were so closed minded that we couldn't collaborate you know, we would have missed out on that opportunity. And it's that synergy and stuff that really makes great art. Mm -hmm. That you're not always going to make a million dollars, but you're going to make great art. I, I know we were talking a bit before the show about how uh, in the last year or so, I started doing some script writing or um, attempted script writing or storytelling for Black Box TV, you know, which is Tony Valenzuela's YouTube uh, channel of short horror films. 
And when I write a script, and, and, and this is in the book, I know, Mark, you can probably attest to this, I give like a script sample, and I talk about how when I'm writing a script, I'm talking to the artist about what I see. Like, this is how I see this scene. And I'm sitting there, and I'm literally chatting through the script. I'm thinking we can't do something like this, and sometimes I say a camera angle, sometimes not. But then once I write it, I just give it to them. Now, you you interpret this way you see fit. And it's a very rare day. It does happen on occasion, but maybe it's like, maybe we could do this a little bit differently. But by and large, the artists see visually more than I do. Mm-hmm. But when I started getting into script writing, I realized that I was very much approaching it from a comic book writer's perspective in that when you're writing a script for a movie, you're only writing what happens I don't play the role of the director. I, I, you know, my first version of the script, I'm like, okay, then you take the camera up the stairs and you go to this scene and you see this thing. And they're like, what the hell are you doing, Dirk? They're like, no, this, no. You just write, character A walks into room, says this. Character B says this. Da, da, da. You don't get to say, and he raises, you know, he looks at him incredulously and raises his eyebrow and pounds his fist on the table. That's the director's job. Mm-hmm. Then the actors, you know, need to kind of take the vision of the director and interpret that as using the way that they see fit. And it was just a really huge wake-up call. I'm like, man, you know, screw this. I'm going back to comics. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I've continued to enjoy uh, some some a lot of fun, you know, working with Tony and and Black Box TV and stuff like that. But it was a, a big wake-up call, and it was just a whole different type of storytelling, you know. And and that's something that. And earlier on, you were asking, is there going to be a second right or wrong book? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the second book is going to be about, okay, now that you've created comics, what do you do now? And I'm going to talk about the convention circuit and things like that. And, and one of the things I, I, I'll probably get into in the second book, I would imagine, uh, I, I shudder and I start curling up at a ball and rocking back and forth, weeping at the idea of doing a third book. But talking about how a lot of people want to take comic book writing and then transfer it right to making movies. I've been in that road a little bit. I've been on that path. And it's not like I was just saying, it's not what you think. I wrote a comic. Now I could write a movie. Mm-hmm. No. Do you want to write comics or do you want to write movies? They're two totally different things. It's big. It's a big topic, I guess, which is why it's a big 216-page book. And these 216 pages only talk about how to actually get to the point where you can make comics, not even – promote them and go on the convention circuit and when people approach you but optioning your work and all this other stuff so mm-hmm. now you're kind of in the cutting edge of two different areas in a way with nightmare world you were one of the first people to do a web comic to uh, launch online uh, before ever putting it in print and then uh, also like you talked about black box tv you're you're doing some writing for a web series which is sort of the the new independent version of television How far would you go to take care of those you love? To make sure that they remain healthy? Black Box TV presents The Hunger. How do you feel about those two mediums and what do you think their futures are? Um, you know, I guess I kind of think the same thing I thought in 2002 when I started the Nightmare World as an online comic, which is why isn't everyone doing this? <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely the way it is, you know, uh, with Nightmare World, you know, I started publishing my work online because there's an older book by a, a writer, Warren Ellis, very prominent comic book writer and creator. Uh, he's gone on to do some other novels, things like that. Now, he did a column for uh, comic book resources years ago called Coming Alone. And one of the things that I read in his column that really opened my eyes and and changed the whole trajectory of my life because uh, he's very he, Warren else was very much and 
always on the cutting edge of technology and borderline a futurist. But he had his really his thumb right on the pulse of, of what was going on. And he talked about at the time the glory of this the internet, the interweb. And he said, you know, if you create a website, if I create DirkManning.com, I have just as much frontage on the internet as Disney. But the only catch is when people go to sit down at the computer, I got to get them to go to NightmareWorld.com or DirkManning.com rather than Disney.com. And to me, I was like, well, there it is. And the fact that now, you know, uh, because I couldn't afford to publish, and I talk about this in the book, when I first started doing Nightmare World, I couldn't afford to publish it. There was no print on demand like there is now. Nowadays, it's crazy. I could I could write a comic and you guys could draw it up. You could do your little stick figures with rulers or whatever. <laughs> I could print 10 copies or I could take a new convention. I could print 100 copies. I could print 1,000 copies. You know, I could print one copy. I could print two copies. We each have one to share. You know, the, the, the technology is there now that we can all do it yourself, you know, be it in comics or in film. You know, Tony Valenzuela was making his own little short films through Black Box TV on YouTube. And as was the case with some other people, I think they did this with Epic Rap Battles of History and a couple others. YouTube picked them up and said, we'll pay you to make content exclusively for us. We'll do a point now where it's just, you know, the technology is there that you got to get out there and do it yourself, man. It's, it's, a, it's a punk rock ethic, you know, mm-hmm. DIY, do it yourself. I did music journalism for years. You know, Metallica back in the day, who's now one of the most renowned heavy metal bands, they got out there originally by bootlegging their own work and giving it to everyone and, and putting their feet on the ground. There's no substitute for hard work. What we're seeing now, however, with all this technology and all these advances, you know, YouTube and print on demand, uh, things like that, is that the and the record industry has has collapsed because of this. And if comics aren't careful, this is going to happen here, too. The gatekeepers are becoming irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I don't need a contract to make comics and sell them. I can market myself. I can make them myself. I can get out there and push them myself. I branded myself. That's why my picture is a little guy with a top hat and sunglasses and a scarf on. Newsflash, that's not what I look like right now when I'm talking. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? I thought you did that all the time. <laughs> you know, even in the bathroom, like Dirk Manning being in the bathroom, top hat, scarf, you know. You can create your own brand and you can mark your own brand and there's Facebook and there's Twitter and remember MySpace and oh, MySpace is coming back for five minutes and it'll be gone again. You know, you know, there's there's all this stuff, you know, that you can market yourself. And, and what's really happening is to answer your question, I guess, very directly, Marks, is the gatekeepers are becoming irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what's happening. And that's very, very powerful. You know, Sturgeon's Law, 90 percent of everything is crap. Mm-hmm. For that 10% that can't or doesn't want to play the game and, and, and cowtail to the gatekeepers, that's when you get womanthology. That's when you get these other books that you can get out there. I mean, Kickstarter, holy F. One of the things that I have not done yet is done a Kickstarter campaign um, because I'm, I'm waiting for the right property to do it with. But that's on my mind more and more because I know if I do a second right or wrong book, I'm going to have to talk about Kickstarter. And then I'm going to have to be able to talk about Kickstarter is do it. You know, yeah. uh, and I just don't have the, the time yet to devote to doing that because that would be a job in and of itself. Right. But, yeah, man, the gatekeepers are going away. And as a result, the gatekeepers now are going to have to realize, OK, we want you to work with us. Not not that the creators want to work with them. The publishers need to say whether it be a film or of music or of uh 
comics, these publishers need to say, what can we get you to work with us? What can we offer you? And very slowly, but very surely, I think the pendulum is swinging that may more that way more and more. I think it's really more on creators to be sort of a jack of all trades now. You can't just say, well, I'm going to write something or I'm going to film something. It's, you need to be responsible for your own branding, your own marketing and, you know, sort of social networking and that kind of thing. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a lot more work, but you also are able to have a little bit more control. Well, right. And, it, and it's a lot more. But again, it comes. It's punk rock, man. I yeah. mean, you just get out there and do it yourself and push and make it where people want to work with you, see the value of working with you and, and go go that way. And, and it's a lot of work. I live in the, I live on this damn computer. It, it, it wrecks my life, but it's what I got to do. Marketing my brand is a 24 hour job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, when people want to co-opt my brand or misrepresent my brand or 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 when they want to promote my brand and, and help talk about the great stuff that Dirk Manning is affiliated with. It's my job to continue to, to mold that and grow that. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. I think it, I think it is a step in the right direction, because if you think about it, you know, in the old days, you had people got together. We like to play music and write music. So we get together and play music and write music. And they would do the hard work and they'd play the circuits and they'd they'd build their fan base. And back then, you know, even more recently, you got, say, Nirvana. Nowadays, you have, I want to get on TV and I want someone to justify my existence. And now you have Justin Bieber, you know? <laughs> and, well, you know, you know. Justin Bieber's another guy that, I mean, he busted his, he busted his ass. You know, and, and, and he went out there and he made a name for himself, you know. Yeah, but now he, you know, but now he has somebody who, you know, decides this and handles his imaging and handles his, you know, a lot of these pop artists now, they're, you know, they have someone else decides what their brand's going to be. Someone else decides, you know, what they're going to do and someone else writes their music and it, it, it doesn't seem as authentic. No, because there is a machine. There is a machine there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, I think before we started taping about uh, I was watching the documentary, the Morgan Spurlock documentary yesterday, greatest movie ever sold. And it talks about that, about once other people start investing their money into it, how much of your integrity, how much of your vision, how much of your passion are you willing to give up? You know, I talked earlier about Alan Moore is a, is a hero, a mentor of mine. Uh, in regards to his the way he his craft, the way he approaches the craft of comics, mm-hmm. Alan Moore is not for sale. And when you, they misrepresented his work, like the awful League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, <laughs> he said, "I don't even want the money. Screw your money. Just don't even put my name on it. You know, don't even put my name on Watchmen movie. You know, things like that." But it's a decision that you have to make when you get to that stage in the game about what's important. Is it important to get paid? Is it important to keep creative control? You know, The Walking Dead TV show is on their third showrunner. And a lot of people are saying, well, it's probably because of Robert Kirkman. Well, he's managing his brand and he has the clout to do it. He's like, listen, you bastards, I've got a, you know, this is one of the biggest shows on television. You're not screwing it up. You're not screwing up my brand. You're not screwing up my image. You're not screwing up my work. But here's the thing. He owns the walking dead that's his baby mm-hmm. he's not work for hire if i write a spider-man script for marvel comics and give it to him they can do whatever the hell they want with it and i get a check his check is based on 
whether or not his work continues to sell and be the the work that he wants it to be. And and there's a very fundamental difference there. Is Justin Bieber just cash and checks now? Maybe. You know, uh, if Kurt Cobain was still alive, would we see Nirvana songs in Chevy commercials? <laughs> That's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe. maybe. I just heard, <laughs> I saw a car commercial recently with Iggy Pop playing, you know, playing in it. Yeah. You know, because you know what? Show me them. Okay, fine. It doesn't, you know, so it's a, it's an interesting thing. And, and there are certainly uh, worse problems to have. There, there are, yeah. You know, and that, that is very much, you know, you see the the guys and the gals who were the rebels back in the day, the rock stars that were, you know, doing drugs and tearing up hotel rooms. And now, like you said, you know, you're, you'll you be watching a car commercial and you're like, isn't that so-and-so? <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're doing reality shows and, and this and that and staging everything because now their brand is a business. Their image oh. is a business. Yeah, what's the what's the commercial? Oh God, uh, the guy from Journey or whatever is doing like the the uh, the vacation. Uh... Oh, Eddie Money! I just saw that Eddie Money yeah. singing Two Tickets to Paradise." Yeah, 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 that's the one. Uh, I saw that. I thought, oh my God. <laughs> but he knows. Yeah. But you know what? He's getting a paycheck and he's happy and he's putting himself out there again and stuff like that. And what's he what's he care? But. Again, it's this this question you want to have. You know, let's say that theoretically someone wanted to option um, uh, Nightmare World for a television franchise, for example. I will have some very serious questions to ask myself. How much do I want to get in the way? Uh, I know a very prominent creator who, uh, based on what he says, squashed the idea of his property. And mind you, this is an older property of his becoming a movie because he didn't like the way they're going to approach the work. And he said, I'll have nothing to do with that. You're not going to turn it into this. Screw you. Mm-hmm. And he squashed the deal. Okay, cool. I respect his integrity on that. And I respect that he doesn't want his vision to be co-opted that way. The flip side of that is, you know what? The book will always exist. Mm-hmm. Nightmare World will always exist as a book. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen will always exist as a book. You know, whatever. Walking Dead will always exist as a book. And if you want to make it a, a comedy or a, a musical or whatever, you know, do I do I just take the money? Or do I, you know, uh, say no and, and protect my the integrity of uh, multimedia interpretations of my of my product and and will a negative a bad tv show or a bad movie uh negatively influence uh, the perception of my work in my book mm-hmm. you know these are all things to think about you know and that stuff that definitely in the next when i do a write the second right or wrong book we'll be talking about that stuff more you know the first one is just about but the first one is just about that punk rock ethic just getting out there and uh creating the work you know there are much worse problems to have than gosh how 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 are they going to uh, reinterpret my work for film? You know, if you're young and hungry, you're just going to say, pay me. Yeah, there pay! are worse problems. Like, how am I going to pay to keep a roof over my head this month? Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Because people don't realize how expensive it is to do independent creation. Like, independent film yeah. can be very expensive, depending on how you do it. And I think people, at least some point, realize that it could be. Mm-hmm. But they don't realize how expensive comic books can be to create. Oh, you you yeah. talk a little bit about that in the book. Can you just give, and you go way more detail in the book, but just a, a roundabout figure, how much would it cost someone who goes, I want to create 
a 22 page comic book, you know, how much are they looking at? You know, I, I talk about in the book. Yeah. You, you could be looking at easily if you're paying for everything uh, up to $65 a page for a comic page, uh, depending, you know, with like a, with another indie guy that's kind of scrapping and fighting like you are, which could put you around $1,400 for a 22 page full color book. Uh, I'll say again, $1,400. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, a, that's if you're paying everyone. And, and, and I talk about in the book as well, but you don't always have to offer money either. There's other ways to go about this, you know, and if someone's really passionate about it, you know, when I started Nightmare World, one of the biggest things I talked to people about was the fact that, you know what, this is exposure, you know, for your work as we're all starting out. I'm putting this stuff online for free. And a lot of people, you know, and, and, and some people turn their noses up and I'm like, everyone will see it. Mm-hmm. You can just tell people, hey, do you want to see that I can draw comics, Marvel? Go look at this website or here's, you know, here's an online portfolio. They're creating pieces for their portfolio. It's not all about money. And as stereotypical as this may sound, a lot of artists aren't necessarily in it first and foremost for the money initially up front. But, I mean, if you just want to go hire people and pay them and stuff like that, you could be looking at easily $65 a page minimum. But again, you know, I talk about this at length in the book. It's not just about the money. And you can work with people. People work with you for free initially in the event that there are other perks that they're getting out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, if someone really wants to draw Cthulhu, damn it, man, it is your job to give them a cool short Cthulhu story to draw. Cause why not? They're going to draw something anyway. Yeah. You know, let's draw something together and let's put it out there and let's make a comic out of it and, uh, and go that way. You know, yes. you know, that but, happens a lot in filmmaking. You know, you, you eventually you start networking, you find, well, this person has some sound equipment. This person's got this camera this is an actor, they want to get some work and get some exposure. And then, you know, you, you talk and, and it's really bartering and trading. And then it's also, hey, we're all going to get exposure. We're all going to have things for a demo reel, you know, and you have to start somewhere. Yeah, it's creating, you're creating opportunities mm-hmm. to try to work your way up. That That's exactly right. And that's exactly what it comes down to is, uh, you know, and there were people that scoffed at the idea of doing uh, eight pages with me for no money up front. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, good luck proving to editors and stuff that you're worthy of $50 a page if you have nothing to show for it. (laughs) Or, you know, because, I mean, you know, again, with Nightmare World, I was able to offer exposure to a lot of these guys and gals coming up and stuff like that. And and I gave them stuff they wanted to draw. And it's like, if you're going to be drawing samples anyway, you might as well draw something that people will see and, you know, we can get something out of it. And this gives you the opportunity to work with a guy that can write. Right, kind of well, you know, and in this way, you know, ooh, how do I put this into six panels as opposed to just I'm going to draw a four panel page, you know, you know, so it was definitely a a process and, and, and definitely, you know, I mean, it's a partnership and it's a marriage. And again, we're all just professionals. We're scrapping and trying to, you know, uh, you know, move our way up in the world, which is in a lot of, uh, you know, it's. Nightmare World did a, did a lot of good for me. It did a lot of good for many of the artists I worked with. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the stuff we talk about in the book and just give, you know, like you said earlier on, you know, I mean, I came up from nothing. I came up from nothing. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, I can at least say that this is how to, everything I could possibly tell anybody that wants to write about how to make comics, network with artists and the philosophy, the right, what I consider to be the right approach to have and things like that and how to break in without just blindly sending 
pitches to uh, Marvel and DC because they won't read them, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting how you said, you know, people sort of scoff at at that idea of let's band together and we can at least get some exposure because, you know, a lot of these same people would think nothing of either they or their children doing an unpaid internship during a time at a university for the experience. And this is very much the same thing. You're giving yourself your own work experience, but some people think because it doesn't have a stamp of corporate approval, it doesn't count. Well, right, which is the biggest myth at all about branding. I mean, I'm very happy that a lot of my work comes out through Image Comics Shadowline. I'm proud to be affiliated with their with with Jim Valentino's brand, with Jim Valentino's family of books and stuff like that. That that definitely lends a certain amount of credibility to my work as opposed to self-publishing. Mm-hmm. It's not that my self-published work was any worse. It's the same work. Yeah. But now, you know, I mean, people are seeing, oh, you know, he's with Shadowline. That that means something. Mm-hmm. But like you said, at the at the end of the day, too, I mean, you have to get out there and you have to do the work and you have to get out there and, and be willing to pay your dues. You have to earn it. Yeah. And just because you work for it doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right. But you never get it if you don't work for it. You're just pushing the needle in your favor a little more. And there's a lot of things that have to happen, a lot of hard work, a lot of, you know, there's going to be hard work, talent, and arguably a, a little bit of luck. Mm-hmm. And uh, nothing is guaranteed in anything, whether you're talking about creating comics, creating film, whatever. But I do know for a fact that if you have integrity, if you're smart about how you do things, you pick your battles well, and you, and you work to hone your craft, which is all the stuff I talk about in the book, you can greatly increase your chances of being finding the success that you want to find or at least having a hell of a lot of fun you know if i was to fall off the face of the earth tomorrow god damn man i've made i made my baby i made nightmare world you know i made tales of mystery i made love stories about death i got to write short films of black box tv you know I got to, and I got to write this book about helping other writers create comics. You know, I made I made what I can be the Bible for anybody that wants to write comics but can't draw to help them get started. I haven't made a million bucks yet, but I'm happy. Yeah. I'm smiling. <laughs> Just saying it. That's the name of the game. When all said and done, that's the name of the game. You know, I got to work with Riley Rosmo for a short story for him for a comic that comes out Wednesday, and I've made a lot of good friends. I'm pretty good, man. I'm pretty good. Well, good. Let's give you another chance to tell our listeners where they can find your book and, and you online. Yeah, I say pretty much everything else. <laughs> you know, we've been talking, you know, about Right or Wrong, W-R-I-T-E, A Writer's Guide to Creating Comics. It's on Amazon. I think it's about 16 bucks. Uh, if you're a creative type at all, and if you're anyone that's that's interested in, in, in writing, uh, comics especially, obviously, but uh, you owe it to yourself to spend $16 on yourself. I'm not looking to get rich off this. I'm just saying I wrote the book. If you want to create comics, this book is for you. This is the book that will help you. I did not go to a giant mega publisher and get this huge royalty advance and all this to write this book. I write, I wrote this book to help people because that was the promise I made myself that I would do if, if people wanted to create comics and didn't know how to get started. So, you know, uh, Right or Wrongs on Amazon, the three Nightmare World trade paperbacks I've written uh, – if you're into horror stuff and uh, speculative fiction, uh, like the stuff of Carol Nelson and Ray Bradbury and H.P. Lovecraft, I would highly recommend you check out the three Nightmare World trade paperbacks on Amazon. Um, I've been doing some short films of Black Box TV, so much love to Tony Valenzuela and Black Box TV on YouTube. 
And uh, this coming Wednesday, I will have a short story in Dia de la Mortis, number one, with artist Riley Rosmo. Uh, it's reverse Nightmare World. In Nightmare World, I wrote all the stories and different artists illustrated each one. Uh, Riley Rosmo is doing this great book from Image Comics, Shadowline. He approached a bunch of different writers, and I was one of them. And he said he wanted us each to write him a story about Day of the Dead, the Mexican Day of the Dead, that he would uh, – not the movie, uh, the, the holiday mm-hmm. – that he would uh, then illustrate our scripts. And uh, I'm the last story in the first issue, uh, Tevas Angel Mio. And it's about a mariachi player who's performing in the Day of the Dead and sees someone in the crowd that reminds him of his lost love. And there's a lot more to the story than that. It's not the old typical, oh, well, obviously, Day of the Dead, you know. <laughs> no. So uh, I, I, I got a little more in me than that. So it's, uh, you know, if people like comics, want to go check it out. Uh, Dias de la Mortis number one will be in shops on the 6th. And um, other than that, people can find me on Twitter or on Facebook at uh, just Dirk Manning, all one word, kind of top hat and the glasses, not the wrestler. And, uh, you know, my comic work's all available online at shadowlineonline.com. People can check that out in the webcomic section. Oh, I really enjoyed Nightmare World. I liked your combination of devil, angel type stuff, apocalypse elements combined with Cthulhu, you know, Lovecraft elements. I thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah, you throw in even a little bit of Cthulhu. Marx is there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a big Lovecraft fan. Yeah, the, the best compliment, the best description I've heard of Nightmare World was the call, the uh, the, the Cthulhu mythos meets Parad- John Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, yeah. oh, that is good. That's it. what it boils down to, you know. But thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate you taking time to check out the right or wrong book as well. You know, uh, I, I really appreciate that as well. So yeah. thank you for that. I enjoyed it. I've always wanted to make a comic book. Actually, probably before I wanted to do filmmaking, that's what yeah. I wanted to do. I think because I was intimidated by how to make films, I didn't have a lot of people around me who knew how to do that. So the only thing I kind of knew would be how to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, well, comic books would be easier to break into, and I read so many comic books. But then when I went to film school, that changed. Everything flip-flopped. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but someday I would like to, to do a comic book story. So And if I do, you know... You'll probably get a special thanks. <laughs> <laughs> My thank you would be you doing it. One of the things that people ask me a lot of times is like, you know, why are you you're telling all these people how to create comics and stuff like that? Aren't you creating your own competition? And it's like, no, man, I'm creating more good comics that I can read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't you want more good art in the world? Why wouldn't right. you want more good stuff in the world? You know? Right. So that's it. It's not a competition. There's only one Dirk Manning. No one's going to make the comics I want to write. But I want to read the comics that you want to write. This is Michael Flores, creative Western X, and you're listening to Genretainment. Thanks to Dirk for agreeing to visit the show again, and we wish him luck with his book and other future projects. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Including writer and consultant Jennifer Dornbush about her new book, Forensic Speak, How to Write Realistic Crime Dramas, plus more web series interviews like our upcoming interview with one of the stars of the action comedy web series, Adventures of Super 7. I think you should have to say it like that. Adventures of Super 7. And our fun interview with the cast and crew of the supernatural web series, Malice. 
And don't forget, you can check out all of our past episodes and archives at SciFiPulseRadio.com. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and Jeff Trek. Genretainment will be back right here on this channel at SciFiPulseRadio.com next Tuesday. Thanks everyone for listening. Until, Until next, next time. time.